Athletes, take your mark, get set. It's time for the Attic to Athlete podcast. Everybody out there, Coach Blue Robinson here. Listen, thank you all for downloading, sharing, and subscribing to the podcast. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you for jumping on, giving us a review, and sharing this with anyone who struggles with mental health, addiction, shoot, you name it. This podcast can help. So thank you for getting it into the ears of those who truly need it. Athletes, keep uh, keep an eye on our website, addict2athlete.org. You'll find all of our upcoming events. We've got some neat things coming up this summer for all kinds of service opportunities, uh, the recreation, the extracurricular recovery, all that stuff available on addict2athlete.org. And of course, thank you to all of our Patreon subscribers. Now, athletes, I'm excited today. We've got we've got a guest here today that I'm sure you've seen or heard of, um, and I'm excited to get you to know uh, a little bit more about this athlete, I want to call her an athlete because she is. I've seen I've seen some social medias out there, but more so, uh, our guest today is an inspiration, and she has done and overcome some things in life that most people would say is impossible. And I think, Jenny, as we introduce you to Team Addict Athlete, you'll find that your message that helps uh, these these individuals see that that we're never too far gone is going to resonate within uh, their hearts. So your story, just kind of who you are, and what you've what you've turned your life into despite all the setbacks and the roadblocks that really wanted to drag you down and keep you stuck. So you are you are the antithesis of our erase and replace philosophy, but listeners, I want to introduce you to, to Jenny Burton. Jenny, tell us a little bit about yourself, and I would love to jump into how you pivoted your life to become, I, I guess, again, in essence, the, 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 the benefactor of erasing addiction to replace it with things of greater value. Welcome to the podcast, Jenny. Mm, thank you so much, Blue. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about you, because uh, you know there's there's a lot we could go into, but I, I really kind of want to know more about your 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 transition, your change into yeah. what was to what is now. And so a little background wouldn't hurt, but let's uh, let's get the listeners to know a little bit about you. I really appreciate the way that you stated that because usually everybody wants to hear about the mess first. And so a little bit about me is um, so I'm a. I'll be 50 years old this year. And, um, I just, I made a decision that I could do really hard things. Um, and it didn't happen in a linear fashion and it didn't happen overnight. Um, it happened through a succession of events that have occurred over almost a five decade span. And, um, what that looks like really for me personally, is I was born into a family of addicts. I've always been a really active, very intelligent person. Um, however, I lost sight of that you know, after a number of years of addiction, but I grew up in an addict family at a very young age. I was introduced to drugs um, by my mother mm-hmm. and uh, I was a high achiever in a lot of ways and I wanted to participate in a lot of things and I tried to perform for love and acceptance. And yeah. what I found was, is that the more I tried to perform in ways that I thought were appropriate and acceptable, the more I was denied acceptance and love in my family. And so it was kind of like a, if you can't beat them, join them scenario. And I submitted, I submitted to something so that I could feel wanted as a small child. Um, And I abandoned everything that mattered to me. Mm -hmm. So I, and so, you know, after decades of self-destruction, I, I was tired Um, and I gave everything. I gave the attempt to die all of my power, uh, and it looked different at different times. Uh, but when I realized I woke up at the age of 40, well, I don't think I had slept for a really long time, actually, if we want to get technical, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. uh, but there was a part of me that woke up. Um, and it was a really interesting awakening. Actually. Um, I was awakened to the fact that I was living in hell and mm-hmm. that my life 
was the, what it was. And I was actually ready to die. And um, with all of my energy, I put forth and projected out into the universe, this desire and need to die. And what I got in return was a very different kind of death. I definitely did die to a life that I was extremely familiar with, uh, yeah. but I was reborn into something that was going to require every bit of my energy to become someone that I had always been in my heart, but that I thought that I had lost the ability or maybe actually was misguided about the idea that I would ever actually become her. And mm -hmm. since then, which that's been about nine years, one month, and what's the day today? The 20th? <laughs> the 20th, yeah. And okay, so nine years, <laughs> one month, and 14 days ago, uh, my oh. life actually began its transformation. I'm sure it began mm. a lot sooner than that, or a lot uh, farther away than that. But like when I made the decision to surrender to yeah. the destructive things in my life, um, my life started to blossom. But what mm. it required was a tremendous amount of hard work. Absolutely. So listeners, I love how you prefaced all of this, Jenny. And, and the reason why is because the only reason I think that we've really been able to gauge who you are is because of some pretty heavy duty social media posts, right? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure, but you are one of the, the individuals whose photos of the before and after have absolutely shocked people. Yeah. And as I was listening to the news article that, 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 that the news did on you. Oh, there have been hundreds of articles all across yeah, the entire world. Seriously. So he mentioned though, like how many times you've been like incarcerated and, and, you know, charged and stuff. But I mean, I'm thinking you mentioned something at the very, uh, like at the, when the last, one happened the last arrest where you were like thank you officer for doing this i've heard this as a therapist i've heard this so many times you know in my, in my career where the people are like and it really is the dedicated heart that want to change where they're like they see what could be that very negative part of life like oh crap here we go again as a blessing like now's the time jenny out of all the times and there's been many that you've been you know arrested handcuffed put in you know put, put in jail why was this one different? What was, a, what was it about this one that made you feel like I'm done? Because you made a commitment that day. Yeah. So, you know, there was a really long period of time, more than a 30 year experience with, uh, well, I would say actually roughly 30 years um, of an experience of, of arrest and incarceration and addiction. And, um, when I had gotten out of prison about about two years prior to that arrest, maybe a little bit more, and uh, I didn't actually want to be using, uh, but I had gotten myself into another situation, um, and it was a domestic violence relationship, and it had been a really long time since I'd been in something like that, and the relationship was monstrous, and uh, I was terrorized for a long period of time, and my mom had died in the process, and I was literally spiraling out of control. Uh, I swore I wouldn't abandon my youngest kid the way I had my older kids, and I abandoned her too for addiction. And you know, and so I, I, and I, and I knew like my relationship with drugs was more than problematic. It was destructive, and it was going to end my life in so many ways. And and I really didn't want to use again when I got out, but I ended up using again because it seemed like the better alternative. And once I started, I couldn't stop. So, you know, the addict in me was not going to try to like surrender on its own because yeah. for anybody that has any experience with the disease of addiction and I, a dis-ease of addiction, right? More so than Love like it. a 
a health problem. I think it's a spiritual malady, but that's a whole other conversation. Um, what, you know, anybody that understands the, the monstrosity that beast is, um, it's almost impossible to put to sleep and and some people are able to do it, but my disease progressed to the point to where I needed an intervention. And so when I was arrested, my attic didn't want to be locked up. My spirit was so grateful. Um, Mm. so I was done long before I could ever stop. And if it wasn't for that system, I don't know where I would be. Well, yes, I do. I would be where all of the people that we see living in tents and squalor and shooting dope and killing each other and crapping on the sidewalk and trafficking each other. I would be where they are today without the hope of getting out because the policies are changing so that we don't have the opportunity to be separated from our disease anymore. My gosh, I'm blown away by that. And that's that's it, listeners. You know, the thing that that I want you to kind of like listen to her words is that there comes a point in a pinnacle in time where we have to start looking at who's the real enemy. Is it the people that kind of scoop up, scoop us up, and and lock us up? Are they the enemy, or is it truly that that disease, that that addiction? And I think we're we sometimes we channel it to the wrong people and things, don't we? Because oh yeah, you know, you also to a certain degree your recovery uh, has been fairly like visual. And what I mean by that is how in the world did your, did your booking photo at you at probably one of the most difficult challenges times in your life, how did that become public? Oh, because I'm curious about that kind of stuff because I'm thinking you had to have had the people on the other side that are also like, you know, like the, the trolls, right? The, the, the people that are like, she deserves everything she gets and look at this person. Very small percentage actually. Funny Isn't enough, it? I don't have a lot of those. Oh, thank um, heavens. But tell I mean, every it... once in a while, I would say it's less than 2% of my interactions are negative. Um, Love it. Which is unbelievable, but I think that also is a testament to, you know, people. I've definitely seen people post where they're like, oh, that's not real. That's a man. That's not her. And then I will sometimes get on because somebody will direct me to a specific post. and Yeah. And I'll get on and I'll say, are you sure about that? And then I invite them to my page or the people that will get directly on my stuff and try to trash talk. And I, you know, I say, oh, really? Then why is it that you've made the journey all the way here to see me if you didn't believe it was me? And so, um, but you know how I got that picture is, so I, um, one of the things that happened for me is when I got out, I ended up not going to prison for my fourth time and I ended up in a drug court program. Um, yeah. And I then, because uh, I had a nonprofit organization that supported me through my legal process, which was fantastic. They were able to secure at a discounted rate a private attorney for me who negotiated mm-hmm. my opportunity to go to the King County Drug Court in Seattle, Washington. That was one of the best things that could have ever happened for me. Um, yeah. I, I never get aside from that time, um, opportunities to defer my charges to something else. And so, um, so I took full advantage of it. And the thing is, is the judge that was talking to me, he said, you're not going to succeed. People with your history do not follow through. They do not succeed. And I love a challenge and I love a challenge. And I love it when somebody pisses me off by telling me what I am or not going to do. So, you know, I always take people on those challenges, but, um, So the booking photo, I ended up, you know, working in social services. I immersed myself in service from the moment that I got out 
and helping people like myself initially in the prison system and then I in the homeless industrial complex. Um, but I ended up connecting with this journalist. He, I was on a number of shows with him. He uh, filmed the redemption of Jenny Burton. His name's Eric Johnson with Como Who's For. Mm. And uh, when that process was happening, I petitioned the county for my mug shots from King County because I was um, tremendously strung out on heroin and cocaine in that in that photo. And so, and I have a long history of drug addiction with all kinds of drugs. It's so funny; people really differentiate. They're like, "Oh, she was on meth in that picture. Oh, she was yeah. doing this. I was smoking crack and shooting speedballs, and that's what I was doing during that time. And I was extremely mm-hmm. emaciated, uh, and I'm pretty tall and thin as it is. So. Uh, but anyways, I got a hold of those mugshots, those and some that one and some others, and um, and I'll be really honest with you, I had never seen myself through the eyes of my clean self wow. during that time, and it was um, it was very emotional. I I received a sheet with these small, the pictures were maybe one by one or maybe two by two, you know, um, and there were a number of them. But I sat down and I looked and and I cried. Uh, I cried because I understood the depth of my hopelessness in that, in that picture. My gosh, that had to be like, like literally one of the biggest eye openers of life. But that's the thing is turning your mess into the message, right? And, and, And saying, Hey, I can do this. I'm curious because again, the judge is looking at you and he's like, you're never going to make this. Drug court's a beautiful thing. It's how I started this program actually is when I was working as a therapist in a program that had drug court. And the kids that are the kids, the adults I was working with were like, Hey, we don't really like doing these other community meetings. And so we started Addict Alley to help them. But I'm curious, when did you switch over from, I'm going to stop being like contributing to this, this problem. And I'm going to start alleviating the problem. When did you switch to say, I'm going to start giving back. Cause I think that service mindset, people that go through this are the most amazing people that can motivate and inspire because they've been through it. But I'm curious, how did you make the transition from like literally addict to scholar? Well, I think that's that had always been a huge part of me from a young child. I was in Excel programs, but mm. what once I always have to give a little context. Sorry, I can be very wordy. I love um, it. But I uh when I got locked up, I knew I hated myself, right? I knew I hated myself when I was arrested in the backseat of the cop car. Um I was, it was made very aware to me spiritually, the moment that I went through booking that, um, that I wasn't going to die and that I could not exist in the hell that I had been existing in for so long and that I had continued to unravel myself and become the things that I swore that I would not. And I knew that I could not stand the woman that was looking back at me in the mirror. So service had to start first with me. I had to figure out how to love myself. And what that process looked like was, okay, I'm telling myself things that I've adopted on as my truth, but I didn't feel that way about myself, you know, at the age of six, at the age of five, because I had to take it all the way back. Right. And Mm -hmm. I had to really reflect back like, okay, when did this start? I don't really know. Did you feel this way about yourself at this time? And and it's like, I, I don't think that I did. I remember feeling like any little girl probably did like, special and fantastical. I was in ballet and could be a ballerina and maybe, you know, just do all of these things. And, um, 
you know, so at some point I consented to believing these messages, right? And mm-hmm. and there's a high probability that because they were not my messages, that, the, that they were lies. Yeah. So I decided at that time that I would change the message. And mm. so I started practicing, you know, one day at a time. Uh, I wrote a list of things I didn't believe about myself, that I was capable and worthy and strong and a good mom and a good sister and a good parent and I mean a good wife and a good you know whatever I was at the time and and I started saying these things to myself and so um and then I started studying you know scripture and meditating and doing different things that I had done in the past that helped me to change parts of myself and so my service really started early on in incarceration where I would yeah. try to share this hope and encourage people to go to 12-step programs because I did have a previous experience with 12-step programs mm-hmm. so and and that's kind of how I am when I'm trying to be healthy I try to find and take advantage of every opportunity to grow myself because I know that my foundation was very fractured and there yeah. were a lot of things I didn't learn and so When I, as soon as I got out, I immersed myself in this service because I think I had an innate belief at that time that even though people come in with well intentions, Mm -hmm. um, they don't often know how to address some of the underlying causes because they don't have the experience. And so, you know, and I think that that actually is more of a universal or God uh, given, I think, calling. I would be the yeah. right way to say it. And uh, the more I showed up in that path, the more I showed up in what would eventually become a very solidified calling that was a result of prayer. And it often feels like a huge burden that I don't want to carry, but I, yeah. I know what it's like to not live in that calling, right? And, and yeah. the turmoil and despair and destruction that come along with not, it just makes a whole lot more sense to keep moving forward where I'm at. And, but there's another part of it where the antidote to me is you. I'm a self-centered being. Yeah. If I am not helping someone else, I'm thinking about myself. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I'm not afraid of getting loaded again. I'm not afraid of going to prison. I'm not afraid of the behaviors. I don't like myself when I'm participating in those things. Yeah. And uh, I'll tell you what I am afraid of, though. I am afraid that if I'm not serving others, that I will go back to living in the hell. And it doesn't matter to me if I'm clean, if I'm loaded, if I'm incarcerated. Feeling the way that I felt about myself for so many years, it's just not worth it to me. So it makes sense to me. And more than anything, I want to see people thrive. And I know that if I can, so can anybody else. You're living proof of that. And it's one of these things where someone would look at you as they have with me. I've been clean now for 20 plus years. Nice. And they're like, they're like, how? Yeah. You know, that's easy for you. Look, and I'm like, no, it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. You probably get the same thing too. Like, well, it was easy for you. I'm different. No, you're not. We can all do these hard things, right? I mean, right. You've, you've heard it from people that's like, well, that's, that's you. I'm like, no, there's a yeah. universal truth in what you're speaking, right? Yeah, I'm not extraordinary. And that's the message that I try to share. And you know, the thing is, is that I was coming into the rooms for a long time, looking around at everybody else saying, yeah, people like me don't actually get clean. I'm not hearing myself in any of these shares, you know? And then what happened for me is I had this friend, her and I had been to prison together. We met in 1994. She was going to prison for a murder beef. And uh, she got out. She was crazy as a bed bug. 
<laughs> went through some addiction. Her and her girlfriend like shot each other and stuff. And um, but she got clean. Mm. And then she, and her and I saw each other at a meeting. We actually had beef for a while. And I was like, <laughs> I was all cracked out coming into a meeting, probably with some leaves in my hair, but, you know, looking uh -huh. for a cup of coffee and hope, hopefully recovery would hit me upside the head like a ton of bricks and I might True. get my life together. And her and I saw each other and she immediately just had compassion. I was like, we can go outside and do this if you want to. I'm like, whatever. Cause I got no sense when I'm on drugs. And so, um, right. but you know, what ended up happening was something very different. And I, when I saw her, she stayed clean and I went to prison and got out and she was still clean. And then I got into that relationship and I was loaded again. And then I got locked up again and I got out and she was still clean and she was going through all this crazy stuff, but I knew that she was as crazy as I was. So mm -hmm. she was that piece of hope that I needed to believe that it was possible for me too. And I, oh. that's what I try to offer people. Right. I try to offer mm -hmm. like, yeah, dude, I am not special. I'm not, do I haven't been gifted anything. Like I just yeah. force myself in everything that I do. I force myself to get off of my butt and do it anyway. I yeah. often do not feel like doing half of the things that I do. I feel uncomfortable. I feel intimidated. I feel insecure. Sometimes I feel old. I mean, I feel all kinds of things, but yeah. what I know is like, my feelings are only as valid as I allow them to be. And they only have as much power as I give them. What yes. do I actually want my life to look like? Right. Cause I'm just going to go ahead and ignore the crap going on in my mind and I'm going to get up and I'm going to move forward. And where I learned how to do that better than anywhere else was on a mountain, mm -hmm. you know? Yes. And I, I want you to talk about that because what I'm hearing you also say, and listeners, please, you've heard us talk about this before here on the podcast is discovering your soul purpose. And that's, that's not as easy as some people think. And it took a lot of time and a lot of effort, a lot of incarceration for you to find that sole purpose. And, and it, it's, it's, to, it's to serve. You are a servant. So that's what I am. I have a therapist. That's what I do for a job. That's what I do for my career, everything. But it's like we make, we, we make crappy uh, you know, creators. I, I can't build anything to save my life, right? We make, I'm not a very good, I'm not a very good healer. I don't like blood. I can't watch this kind of stuff. But service out of our inconvenience, I find, is, is the biggest part. And you, started to align your purpose there. And then you thought, let's put this to the test. I want to hear about this mountain climbing thing, because as you transitioned out of that addict mentality, there was, there, why mountain climbing? Mountain climbing is a great metaphor for so many things in life. You've experienced many of this. Tell me about why you started climbing, started hiking. What was, why? Yeah, so I was in drug court and I felt trapped. I was confined to a specific county boundary. And it was yeah. crazy, you know, social media was a thing. I was living in a clean and sober house. I was, you know, there was a short period of time where I felt a little suicidal. And what, that's when I learned how to sit still when all else fails, do nothing. Um, yeah. And so uh, that, was, that was in 2013 was my last feelings of depth, in depth hopelessness. Um, but I just, you know, I started really listening to my spirit, but I was scrolling through social media and I started to see these trees. And I felt like I was being called by trees. And so I went mm -hmm. to the Arboretum in Seattle and uh, by myself, and I just walked around and I, I just felt really connected to the trees. And then I continued mm -hmm. to feel called close, you know, out farther and farther. And, and I didn't understand really what that was, but what was happening was I was being defragmented. The more yeah. I was close to the earth and the trees and farther away from people, 
I started to be reconnected in ways or connected maybe for the first time in ways that brought me to the person that I am in my heart. And so, and I, there's this other aspect of me, you know, I've always pushed myself in areas to try to be the best that I can, not better than everybody else, just show up as the best version of me. And, yeah. and so um, I started doing harder things. Uh, I also have a little bit of an ego. I've, I have five brothers. And so there's a little Love bit it. of competitiveness, right? But mm -hmm. I, not that I want to race, but it's just like, I just want to do better and like go farther. Yeah. And so I just started doing more. And then I started backpacking solo. And then eventually in 2017, I, um, I joined this church and I met a bunch of people uh, people in this church don't use or drink drug or use or drink alcohol. And, um, but I found a bunch of folks that were doing outdoor things. And this guy invited me on a day hike. Ha ha. Yeah. That's his total joke. It, we ended up yep. being stuck on the mountain, uh, for 24 hours. It was my very first climb at Mount Roosevelt in the Snoqualmie oh. Pass area in Washington. And, um, <laughs> uh, one of our guys broke his tibia 500 feet after we summited. He, no way. Yeah, he slipped out and his crampon hit a tree and oh. it broke his tibia down close to the ankle. We didn't know it was broken. And so we had to get him off the mountain. We had one headlamp amongst five people. And, oh my gosh. Um, and that's when I learned. And I was on my feet for a 24-hour period almost. And, uh, yeah. and I pushed myself harder than I ever thought possible. I, that, I eliminated my opportunity to have excuses for anything yeah. that day. Yeah. And, um, as much as I was like, cause I used to say, oh, I'm a hiker. I'm not a mountain climber. Cause I'm afraid of heights. I'm really afraid of heights. And that's one of the things with me too. It's like, oh, if I'm really afraid of that, I want to hit it head on. I want to conquer that fear because I don't, I don't like being afraid. And even as yeah. a kid, when, you know, my brothers would do stuff or I'd get bucked off a horse. My thing was to always go straight back at it to eliminate that fear because I didn't want to walk around in fear. So, and that's what, that's why mountains, mountains helped me to become a person that says, I have no excuse, dude. And it just takes yeah. one step after another. That doesn't mean it's not going to be hard. That doesn't mean yeah. that I don't want to quit every time I start, but I'm going to tell you the view in every different part of my journey you cannot even fathom it, not even through pictures. Pictures do yeah. not do any of it justice. And that's literal and it's metaphorical. You uh -huh. will never see the world from top of, from a picture the way that you actually see it on top of a 14,410 foot mountain where you I can't breathe very well. So yeah, there's no oxygen up there. It, yeah. Jenny, you are speaking so much principle right now. And I love it because it's like this. There's nobody I'd rather be stuck in a situation like that than someone who has recovery under their belt because we are the most amazing problem solvers known to man. And it's kind of a funny thing, right? You flip the script. Remember back in the day when you wanted to get high, but you had no money, no means necessary, no transportation. At the end of the day, you had what you wanted. You created that out of nothing. You flip that script and you do something for positive. There's nothing we can't do because we've been, we're creators. That's, that's part of an addiction, right? So th that being said, it's like, I'm sure it was hard and it was, it was gut wrenching and it was difficult. And you probably felt for this guy who broke his leg yeah. and it probably hurt, but it didn't hurt as bad as it did that last time those cuffs went on you and they pinched your, your wrist and that, how bad it hurt when you heard that jail door slam behind you once again, that's real pain. So you, you're probably like, I've got this, this is, this is no big deal. But I, I think that's amazing. Plus I, I'm curious about this, the solo aspect. 
it takes a ton of courage and, and a lot of inner strength to do something like like backpacking solo. Um, tell me why. Why did that pull you to do these things by yourself? I mean, when you're when you're in recovery or in your addiction, being alone with your own thoughts is scary. How how did you manage that? How did you cope with it? Well, how it started actually, uh, my husband and I were together. And he relapsed, and he was supposed to go on my first backpack trip with me. Mm -hmm. And he, I had kicked him out because he relapsed, but we were still talking, of course. But um, yeah, he he didn't show up. He had work. Well, I wasn't going to give up my time that I had scheduled. I took vacation time for that, and I really wanted to go because what I get out of being out in the mountains is something that maybe wasn't the same for him. You know, because yeah, he came from a sure. different kind of foundation. So it provides me something different. And it's something that I'm extremely passionate about and have actually switched addictions with. Right. And so um, yeah. and it's something that really benefits me spiritually, mentally and physically. And so yeah. and that's been my practice for a long time as body, mind and spirit. And um, so that's how it started. And then what I found was, is that what I got from that pushing myself by myself Fulfilling my goal that I set when nobody's watching. Yes. Um, knowing that I'm capable of taking care of myself, which I've always done a lot of things by myself because of how I grew up. Uh, we were raised around bikers and all kinds of stuff. And you don't bring people to biker clubhouses because they're a yeah. liability. So I'm not really used to doing a lot of things by myself because then I'm not responsible for anyone else. So that's kind of how a lot of it started. It, it, a lot of my friends in recovery were not participating in mountain sports. Um, yeah. So, you know, solo backpacking for me, it, was a, it wasn't a matter of waiting for somebody else to show up so I could schedule it. It was, it was a mm -hmm. matter of when am I going to make time to do the things that carry me? And, and that's kind of the way that my entire recovery has been, right? I don't have a partner, a, a bro, a, a friend, a girlfriend. Nobody came in with me. No one. Yeah. And uh, yeah. nobody's going to like, they're not going out with me either. Right. So yeah. the things that I want for my life, I got to a place this time where it's just like, yeah, dude, this is about you and what you want for yourself. Like I'm here to save my life. I'm not here to make friends. If I do mm. in the process, that's fantastic. But if I don't, it doesn't matter. I have a problem mm. with drugs. So I'm sitting my butt in this seat. And that's what I'm going to do. And that's kind of the way that it is with everything. All right. I have a problem internally. Therapy has never been my jam. I mean, I've yeah. tried it out, but you know what therapists usually tell me is like, oh yeah, well, you're doing all the things that we would suggest. So we don't really know how to help you. So I found ah, a way to help myself. And, absolutely. and I found a way that it felt right for me. Um, mm -hmm. And that was it. And that's a place also where I am able to connect with God in ways that a church doesn't provide, in ways that other people don't provide. Uh, my relationships are very personal and I have a really loving and intimate relationship with mountains. Um, and I so uh, the backpacking solo, it, I make sure on most years, I did not do a great job of it last year because I've been, my life exploded. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I, you know, what it does for me is it, it provides me an opportunity to decompress. Um, yeah. The first day or two, I'm thinking about all of the things that have been plaguing me. By day three, all I'm focusing on is what foot is going in front of the other. When I'm going to stop? Where are my water spots? Life becomes very simplified. And I'm able to push myself for eight to 10 plus hours a day. 
and I know that I can, I'm carrying 35 to 50 pounds on my back, depending on how long the trip is. And the only person that's there that I have to prove anything to is me. That's it. And, uh, and I get the opportunity to have a relationship with the earth, which is a whole other portion of God. There's nothing in between us. There's no concrete. There's no money. There's no stores. There's no technology except for my phone where I get to take pictures. I did have service this last trip that I just did last weekend. And so I did a couple lives because people uh-huh. always want to be out there with me. But, um, so that was yeah, good. They want to go weird. with you. You're like, this is a solo, but like, come on, let us go with you. You're like, no. Yeah, right. Well, and so it was good, but it was a little weird, but, um, and I was, you know, I was backpacking out in, uh, like in between San Diego and Mexico. And so, um, yeah, so it was a different kind of scenery for me, but it was still really amazing. Um, So yeah, it's about proving to myself really what I'm capable of and me being in a trusting relationship with with my higher power, right? And uh, yeah, I mean, people freak out all the time, but you know, I try in most circumstances not to allow other people's fear to have any kind of power in my life. Well, yeah. And, and, and I talk to my athletes about this and I think it's exactly what you're talking about is, you know, you don't allow their fear to, to overflow your faith because faith and fear are the exact same thing when you boil yeah. them down. That's exactly what different it is. Outcomes, right? They're different outcomes. But I love that. I love that concept. And when you're out there hiking and you're moving, that's when I found with, with my clients, getting them out and getting moving, it kind of stimulates the mind. It's, it's a little therapeutic modality called EMDR, right? And as you're moving, you're processing stuff because it's left, right brain stimulation, especially when you're in the mountains because you're always scanning for things. You're, you're looking for that one tree, that one tree root that's poking out that's going to trip you. You're always scanning and you're, so your mind's starting to process this stuff. And it's one of the most beautiful, eloquent things. But I love the fact that you still do it. And I think it's, I think it's amazing. What did, your, what did your husband think? When he did try to get you on the phone and you were gone, was he like, oh man, she was serious. Like, she's not waiting for me. So either I catch up and, and you know, be with her or I just stay here and stay stuck. I mean, that had to be a big visual for him too. And you went anyway. Yeah. I think he's been a little bit of a hater. Uh, I still <laughs> do it. He ended up getting locked it. up and I did it all the time. Um, but mm-hmm. he's, he's also recognized that it's been a huge part of my stability. So in mm-hmm. one hand, he's a little jealous. Uh, in the other hand, he is really grateful that I do it. So, yeah, you know, so it's, it's awesome. a double-edged sword for him. So then tell me about your, tell me about this, this trust within yourself and within others, because as you were talking about going into drug court and all these things, you took advantage of a lot of the services that are provided. Um, but you had to trust a lot of people that may not have been so, you know, like, what are your motives here? Why are you guys helping me? What is this? How did you lean back into that concept of being being able to gift your trust to people? Because that had to be a big part of all of this. I mean, you lived a life by which you were probably, you know, uh, you know, told things and never, you know, never given things. And so, how did you increase with the level of trust, just in yourself and the people around you? How do you gift it to people without them taking advantage of it? All that. That's a really great question that nobody's ever asked me. And it's actually something that I have an intimate relationship with. So I appreciate that you're asking it. Um, First of all, there was the guy, Ari Cohn with Post Prison Education Program, who wanted to help me, mind you. When I started that program, I was clean and sober and doing well. And him and I went through rounds beefing and I talked crazy to him, cussed him out and all kinds of stuff. I love it. And he was still there for me. And I had to ask myself, I was like, what does this dude want from me? 
Yeah. And then I was like, I have nothing to offer. So there, what yeah. could he want from me? Right. So, um, so that was the first portion of it. Uh, I recognized that I was going to have to put my trust in someone. So yeah. I made the decision that it would be him that I would trust. Um, more than that, in the process of me changing the message, there were a few different lists that I created. One was love. What does love look like? What are the characteristics yeah. and behavior of love look like? What are the characteristics and behavior of respect look like? And what are the characteristics and behaviors of trust look like? When I had those things written out, because I got to reflect on the people in my life, right, that showed up or yeah. that did this or that made me feel a certain kind of way. Because people, you remember the way people make you feel, right? Yeah. And so yeah. I got the opportunity to not think about my romantic uh, projections of what things should look like, but actually look at these characteristics and behaviors of people that I really did admire. And I asked myself, am I treating myself that way? Yeah. When I had that sort of, and I had a lot of really private conversations and meditations throughout my entire time incarcerated while I was waiting to go to the drug court. And with the, the specific topic of trust, what I learned was, is it was me I didn't trust. Yeah. So it yeah. was me that I had to gain trust with. When I looked at that list, I said, do you treat yourself that way? Right. And mm. if the answer is no, it's like, all right. So we have to start working on that. So the yeah. more that I trusted me, the more I was able to identify people that I could trust. I definitely mm. still, to this day, I don't trust everyone. I definitely yeah. give people enough rope to hang themselves and not in a skeptical sure. way, mm -mm. but like in a way that says, I'm going to take you for face value right here. I'm probably not going to, and, and you know, and there are different levels of that, right? Like people for don't sure. just know where I live because I am a little neurotic. I don't. I don't need people in my space, right? Some people, exactly. yes, a lot of people know. So I have trust issues in that, in that regard. But, and I still have trust issues with myself, right? When it comes to intimate relationships, I don't yeah. trust my picker. I think I'm attracted mm -hmm. to a specific kind of person, right? Yeah. And so, mm -hmm. and, you know, and my husband and I, like we're working out whatever that's going to look like. It's been, we're heading into year number nine, but like, you know, mm -hmm. there are things I don't trust about him because he's done certain things. So he needs to do some work and I don't trust that I'm not going to continue to make pattern decisions around yeah. that because that's what I've historically done. What, what happens for me is like, I gain the opportunity to show up in my own life. And, and that's one thing I do is I look, I'm like, Oh, okay, well you're not doing this and you're not doing that. And you're not doing this. Okay. Do I do those in my own life? Am I acting yeah. that way toward other people? And that's what I try to always turn it around on, right? If I'm yeah. always turning it back on me because yeah. I can usually adopt on the judgment that I'm throwing out at others. And, you know, I can usually like attach that to myself. And so it's like, all right, which part is the most uncomfortable and let me work on that. And so that's what, and that might seem a little all over the place, but that's my no. relationship with trust. And uh, there are some people when, that I just trust, but like, I'm not going to give you everything, right? So maybe blue yeah. is like, blue is like great at relationships and great at money management, but maybe he has crappy relationships at work, right? Maybe he <laughs> yeah. cusses out his boss. I'm probably not going to go to blue for you know, advice about yep. employment, Exactly. you know what I mean? But I'll come to you about mm -hmm. relationships or money. And so, so that's another thing that I do. Like I pay attention to people's walk 
and their mm. talk. Like, and if you're aligning, like, I know that I can probably trust you to give me decent advice on this area. That's the ticket though. How, I love the fact that you project all that out. And now for that inner work on those solos, when did you switch to being able to trust yourself? Do you? Because that's a big one too. Most of my clients are like, hey, that's the hardest one. I'm like, but look at your track record. Look, even during the worst times of the worst times, the worst things that you've done, you're still here. So you can trust yourself to that degree. So I'm curious, how did you wrap your head around trusting yourself? Yeah, I think I just got honest with myself, right? Like I recognize that everything that happens in this little sphere of myself is a result of a decision that I've made, right? Or a decision that I didn't make. Yep. And um, so like, for example, uh, all right, how does Jenny trust herself? Is she going to show up? for her kid and her kid's, you know, birthday event. Right. Well, normally I don't because I make an excuse. Well, yeah, yeah, we're not making any excuses. If I'm overbooked, Oh, Hey, guess what? I'm going to go ahead and call this person and say, yeah, I can't make that. Right. So I just started showing up in my life and to stop making excuses, Mm. um, stop giving myself an out because I didn't feel like it. Like I started following through on commitments, even when they felt hard. I rec yes. I recognize that, and this was a big, I have a relationship with this. Whatever we tell ourselves is the truth, right? Yeah. And 100%. so I have to really pay attention to what I'm telling myself. And I have yeah. to like really critically think about whether what I'm saying is actually relevant and true. And I need yeah. to also identify whether what I'm saying to myself is rational, whether it's founded in reality or not. And so, yeah. you know, so I mean, that's really kind of, how that that happened. I just stopped. I stopped making excuses and just started showing up and putting one foot in front of the other. And I also, in that statement, I stopped having an expectation of me to show up in some shiny way. That's not realistic. I just showed up as myself. The reality of it all. Jenny, that's, that is, that is beautiful. And that's, that's the thing with, with this listeners is, you know, she's telling you to make the next best decision. You know, to, to get out of your comfort zone a little bit, you know, to stop making excuses. And that to me is, is beautiful. I'm curious, though, and I know we're getting close to time, but I want to touch base on this because this is amazing. I mean, you know, growing up in, in the world that I did similar to yours with crazy drug addicted parents moving around all the time, all kinds of crazy stuff. We have great excuses, Jenny, not to succeed. You know, I carry scars on my back from a, from abusive stepfathers my mom thought would be great, you know, to bring home to us kids. We have great excuses to be the world's best addict, but we we didn't take it. We we rode that pony for a while. They were like, "Well, I'm going to walk from here." Thanks. Yeah. When did you decide to after prison, after incarceration, after drug court, all these things? Why school? Like you went back to school. I, to me, that was the most terrifying thing ever. When I was dating <laughs> my wife Marissa, who you've been conversing with. Um, and I went back to college. I'm like, I'm the first one to ever graduate high school in my family. No one's ever even said the word college. I was scared to death. How did you do that? Yeah. Well, first of all, I was super pissed. So I worked for the post-prison education program for a while and we pushed post-secondary education, right? Except for, I have this huge issue with the government and everything turning into a business and everything being monetized, right? Like if we can look at Mm -hmm. the whole entire country, it's usually not personal. It's all about money. That's a whole other 100%. conversation for a different episode. But um, yep. Um, what happened was in, in 2016, I was beaten in my home by the guy that I'm married to. Uh, he uh, relapsed and broke in and under the influence of uh, alcohol, extreme 
alcohol influence. And um, he beat me on a 911 call. And because I was trying to get him to just leave for a while, but that didn't happen. And so, so that happened. And then um, I was supposed to the very next day on July 5th, start a job where I was supervising three men's programs. I was working in social services at the time. And I didn't know, well, first of all, I was covered in bruises, my whole from head to toe. And so I couldn't start the position because I was working in social services, probably not too keen on, uh, you know, having a new supervisor start, you know, looking like they just got battered in a bar fight or something. And so, um, you know, I was battling a couple things at the time. Am I going to make it through this without this being the event that breaks me? Um, what am I actually doing? Am I going to be okay serving these men? Right. So I, I did go on in a couple of weeks to serve these guys and I was supervising three programs and shoving these guys into housing and they're my own people. They're my own people. Right. And, and I wasn't serving them at my highest capacity because I wasn't actually teaching them how to be independent and sustain a healthy living situation. Okay. And then and then I'm like actually helping the guy that did what he did to me, but I was also testifying against him. He was looking at a life sentence and I thought that was ridiculous. I thought it was, I thought it was excessive and uh, I thought he needed mm. services and he needed to do some time in prison, but not that much, not that much time. Yeah. It just wasn't, nobody is served by that. Right. And so, right. and I knew I had a conversation with the prosecutor's uh, advocate that said, well, we believe if we give people really long prison sentences, they learn how to make better choices. I wanted to fall over and die. Uh, and at the same time, I am working under someone else's contract to fulfill an agenda that I was not actually aligned with. That doesn't mean right. that I didn't get something out of serving individuals, but I knew yeah. that I needed to make changes on a larger scale because I started to recognize that the policy that was being created to serve my people on every freaking point was being Mm -hmm. created by people without lived experience. And I knew that there was no way I was going to be able to enter that arena with my background. And so I made the decision to go to school. And uh, a number of years ago in 2009, this guy prophesied over me while I was in prison. And he told me I was going to make prisons a better place to live. And I always carried that in my pocket, right? And so I've wow. also had like a intimate relationship with the law of attraction and things like that. And I've just been watching mm-hmm. my life manifest in regards to lists that I've made in the past. And so anyway, mm-hmm. so I started praying while I was going to school. I started graduating every quarter with honors. I started to apply for scholarships. I was named a semifinalist in one of the largest community college non- uh, scholarships in the nation. And then I wow. entered in, I applied, I, well, I was being recruited by Ivy League colleges at this time. Um, but I applied to the University of Washington and, um, and I was accepted and I entered into the University of Washington as a Martin's Honor Scholar. And then I was, I won the Truman Scholarship for, for Washington State in 2020, which I didn't realize what a big deal that was, but it's a really oh, wow. big deal. So, you know, I, so that was it. My, my whole goal, and, and I was doing it with a lot of prayer, like, God, if this is what you want me to do, you're going to have to make a way because I don't want to accrue oh, a bunch yeah. of debt. And, and my yeah. prayers were literally answered. And uh, I was actually supposed to be going to public policy school in the winter. I mean, in the fall this last year, but I negotiated this job down here, um, which we can talk about here before we're done. But um, yeah. so that's what, that's what I did. That's how I ended up there. I excelled. Mm. I created a, an amazing network on the campus of the University of Washington. I got super plugged in. I became a family member of the Truman Scholars, and that is an unbelievably 
prestigious and amazing cohort of uh, folks across the nation that's, I think that they've been giving out the scholarship since like the seventies or something, but um, wow. anyways, yeah. So it turned into something way more than I thought. I was landing on the front page of the political science department and of the university of Washington, Seattle thing. And then I started to be interviewed for all kinds of other stuff. And so, yeah, yeah. It just, it's all about service to others. It's all about changing systems so that I can help as many people as I can. That's, that's why it started. That's how it started. And that's where I'm still going. I love it. Jenny, I'm blown away because we have a saying around here that the troops aren't coming, that we yeah. have to be the troops. Oh my gosh. You I love that you said that. Troops. Nobody's coming yeah. to save you, dude. You've got to save yourself. Nobody. Absolutely. And when we get our minds wrapped around that, we're like, we can be pretty damn unstoppable. And that's the same thing. The same principles apply, right? As an addict or someone in recovery, it's like those same principles apply. I'm blown away by that. And listeners, you, you know, you've gotten a little snippet of what, what Jenny's talking about. Do some deep dive and research here. You'll see that what she's talking about didn't just roll out off of off of her mind into this podcast. This, these are years and years of investment and all that. So, so yeah. So, what are you doing now? Let's let's wrap this up by talking a little bit about what you're doing now. Like like how how is life treating you? Well, life is. I'm still working my buns off every day, a yeah. lot of work. Like I'm not even going to be done working until about nine 30 or 10 o'clock tonight. I've been working oh, since wow. about eight o'clock this morning. So <laughs> that's not including my morning routine. Um, yeah. However, uh, I was, like I said, I was slated to go to grad school at the number four policy school in the nation. Um, mm -hmm. And uh and I, these folks, I, I, these folks found me, right? My, my story went viral all over the world. I've been on yep. a number of different shows. I was just recently on the Tucker Carlson Today show on Fox Nation. Oh, um, great episode. Oh, if you wow. haven't seen it, you should subscribe to Fox Nation oh, and go it. watch its redemption and recovery. It was, he said, oh my gosh, I had, that, I had such a great time with that. And he's the only journalist, and this does not include podcast hosts, he is mm -hmm. the only journalist that's never edited anything in or out of an interview that I've done. And yeah, so, yeah. and that's not to say that anybody's like intentionally malicious, but I'm just saying mm -hmm. like the dude is super transparent. And so, so it was it. a really good interview. Um, one of my favorites by far, but I've been on a number of different TV shows or newscasts, at least, uh, that was my first TV show, but, um, so anyways, and it's all about focusing on changing policy, right? So I ended up getting recruited by a program down in North San Diego County. I helped them to launch a thing that they're doing, an initiative that they're doing. Um, and now I am, and I was hired on as a spokesperson, but now I am doing another thing that's quite large nationally. We are going, we're in the development stages. We are transitioning from the name. So, uh, so the name is TBD. It's to be determined at this point, but, um, what mm. our goal is, <laughs> is to find other people like myself and programs that are helping to facilitate the growth of people like myself beyond the mm. need for services, not just addicts, not just former prisoners, but people with disabilities, people that are stuck in the welfare system, people in the homeless industrial complex, helping to grow people beyond the need for services so that we can have a thriving happy, self-supportive society where we don't have to worry about these death sentences that are being handed out through the policies that are in our country right now. Because yeah. Blue, if I was out there loaded today, mm -hmm. there's no way out for me. They're, no. they're really, nobody's coming. Yeah, the, the cops aren't are coming. coming. Yep. They're not mm -hmm. coming to arrest you, man. You're, no, nobody's no. coming. And everything okay, no is by consent. That. 
And no one believes that though, but we're living in a world where 255 people die every day because of overdose. And, but you know what we're going to do is we're going to create a building so they can go shoot dope and we're going to hand out syringes. We're going to get mad at the symptoms because people are, you know, having theft rings and going in and like smashing grabs and, you know, stealing purses and assaulting people and raping people. And we're going to go ahead and excuse all of that and say, well, it's our fault. And it's a social health problem instead of giving people an opportunity to separate themselves. And that's what my focus is with this Mm. national network and us partnering with small programs that are probably unknown to most people across our nation that are Mm -hmm. actually doing really good work because we have a, a, a system right now that does not support those kind of programs, right? And most Thank of those you. programs don't take government funding because there's really no government funding available because they want to change the way that they do business and, yeah. you know, yeah. push like narratives, like harm reduction to housing first to where you have to force the addict and the, the, the vulnerable people into settings where they're consistently exposed to this predatory, drug-infested, uh, victimization yeah. sort of environment. And, and so we just want to create a different playing field where we it. can help to facilitate the growth. And we won't be doing direct service. We'll be more of creating the network and providing leadership skills and a, a number of other things. But we're growing that. And um, if you want to know more about that, if you don't mind, do. uh, please come to my website, www.vginieburton.com. You can learn yeah. about things that I'm doing in the community. We're consistently under construction on my website, but, um, and then once Good. we get the name secured and a couple of other things, we will be rolling out that name and we will be rolling out a website and ways for folks to, to get involved. I love it. I love it. Team Addict Athlete will have to be part of that with you because that's, yes. that's exactly the, the foundation by which we set. We started this thinking it would help a few people. Now we're, we're helping thousands. It's all free community resource. But I've noticed that, again, the troops aren't coming. We've got to start doing things out of the box because traditional therapy and, and, and residential treatment, it's not working. Well, and so most like, of those things are by consent. Yeah. Exactly. A hundred percent. So I love what you're doing. You are definitely, when, when he told you that you're going to change the way that prisons and things do do their, their work, he wasn't kidding. You are spot on. And I love it because it's it's so personal because you've been there. You, you, you've touched it. you smelled it. You've tasted it. Now it's like, now you, your purpose is even more defined and more clear. Jenny, how do people get a hold of you? Do you have social media? I do. do, you, do you, like, let's hear it. So let's on uh, Instagram and Facebook, you can find me at V Ginny, G-I-N-N-Y, Burton. Uh, on LinkedIn, you can find me Virginia Burton, uh, Ginny in parentheses. You can see me on my website, www.vginnyburton.com. And there's contact information in there that does get to me directly. And so, yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing from folks. Awesome. Listeners, you've been well fed today. I want to thank you, Jenny, for being part of this. I know you're busy, so we'll let you go. I think that uh, this will be one of those resources, guys, that you're going to want to make sure you bookmark and uh, check out what she's talking about. And I know that she's on point because she was a fir- you're the first person ever to be in the waiting room before I log on. So I know you're on point. You are you're a woman of your word. I appreciate that. So, listeners, I want to thank you all again. Download and share our podcast with those who need it. And until next time, turn that mess into a message. Thank you.